Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Film Daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 7th, 2017. On today's show, we'll be stopping by the water cooler, talking about it, talking about Boston, talking about My Immortal. What is that? Find out in a few seconds. Uh, in the news, we're going to be talking about uh, problematic casting in the live-action Aladdin movie, an authorized Dracula prequel Justice League is still undergoing a reshoot. We'll talk about that. And some unlikely bidders have come into play for the James Bond film rights. And in the mailbag, we'll be talking about Kathleen Kennedy's role and all these Star Wars problems. Uh, this is Peter Serretta. And with me on today's show are Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. How's it going, guys? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Um, we had that crazy emergency podcast yesterday while Ben was uh, traveling. Uh, when we started this podcast, uh, this daily podcast, that's something that I really was looking forward to is if late breaking news hit that we could, you know, jump on and, you know, just have a first reaction and give some insight onto, into the breaking news in a way that we can't in just text. Um, and it ended up being by far 
in less than 24 hours our most downloaded podcast episode so thank you for listening and i hope you stick with us i i did want to give an update i i've talked to a bunch of people since then um and it, it seems like the story is legit the story is that where colin trevaro or trevaro uh wanted to take this uh final film in this post trilogy he wanted to take it in a direction that kathleen kennedy and lucasfilm and disney were not uh, on board with and it seems like you know bringing in another writer to hopefully because you know his his writer is you know his uh his confident uh, Derek conway so they, they brought in another writer to hopefully get to a uh a middle ground and that middle ground was uh, not, um, you know, it was not turning the dial. So, uh, you know, Colin Trevorrow and Lucasfilm uh, both agreed to part ways. And that, that, that's all we know right now. Um, but you can listen to our whole podcast, which uh, we recorded and released yesterday. And we have a lot of uh, reactions, information. Uh, ben, do you have <laughs> any reaction to that news? My God, that was so crazy. Um, so, I, I mean, basically, I, I would reiterate a lot of the points that you guys said. I listened to your podcast, and and um, yeah, it's unfortunate. I, I feel like uh, Trevorrow is one of those guys who has a lot of talent, and um, and like a lot of people hated Jurassic World, but I almost look at that movie as like his atonement for getting the job of Jurassic World for jumping from safety, not guaranteed to such a blockbuster film, because that movie is actually about uh, it. It has ideas in it. And the ideas are about the audience asking for bigger and more and, and what happens when uh, we give that to them. And I feel like um, he is one of those guys who is, uh, he, yeah, you guys mentioned it before. He's become like a, a uh, the go-to example of white privilege in Hollywood, and I think that's a little bit unfair. I do. I think it was partially uh, because of uh, those comments he made about female directors and blockbusters. But I do, I, I do think he's unfairly judged. I, and I, I want to say this. Um, you know, when Book of Henry came out, a lot of people online were like, you know, fire Colin, fire. Colin. I mean, it's gross. It, like the reaction, even like the you know people celebrating that he's you know been left this project. It, it it just seems like a gross reaction from fans to think like you know this guy worked over a year <laughs> on this on this film trying to you know make the best Star Wars film that he could make, and we're you know you're celebrating you know this guy's failure. It's um I don't know maybe it's that I have a lot of friends who are filmmakers and I see how hard they work, but it just yeah. seems gross to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a tough situation, and we'll talk a little bit more about it when we get into the Kathleen Kennedy conversation in the mailbag later on. But what about you, HD? Um, well, I was one of those who wasn't a huge fan of Colin Trevorrow. I did not like Jurassic World, uh, not for the uh, nostalgia baiting like a lot of people criticize it for, but for its it's treatment of all the characters, not just the female characters. They were all very flat and archetypal, except for perhaps the dinosaurs. Um, so I was not a huge fan of Jurassic World. And so I was very hesitant when I knew, like, when the news of him uh, stepping onto Star Wars uh, was revealed. So I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I 
did think he got kind of an unfair rap for Book the Henry, which, you know, seemed like a passion project for him. So it, I did feel kind of bad that people were just like raking him over the coals for this movie that he was obviously very passionate about. And that is tough. But I got to say that, yeah, he like he has said some pretty bad statements about female directors, which are kind of coming from his own bubble of privilege. So I think it's a matter of just like education versus him yeah. being, you know, out rightly ignorant but um yeah it's a it's a weird situation i'm i am one of those people who are kind of glad that trevorrow is off because even though he is obviously very passionate about this project it just may just not have fit in the in the first place yeah um and another reason i think uh uh, he gets a lot of, of flack uh, for his treatment of women. He did a 2002 short film, I'm not sure if either of you have seen, called Home Base, which mm-hmm. uh, revolves around a guy who is dumped by his girlfriend, and he attempts to get revenge on his girlfriend by pursuing a sexual relationship with his mother, oh, with the girlfriend's mother. Oh, oh wow. So, yes, cringe. You can watch that on YouTube. Uh, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, but I, I, I personally, I mean, no, no. Uh, I'm not going to stick up for that short film, but I, I, I liked uh, Jurassic World a lot, and I was looking forward to seeing what Colin was going to do with Star Wars, but uh, that will never happen. Um, but yes, so let's move into the water cooler. Last night, I finally got to see it. I think we talked last week or two weeks ago uh, with you, Ben, because you had seen mm-hmm. the movie at a junket screening, and mm-hmm. boy, this movie is it just checks all the boxes on you know it's coming coming of age set in the eighties uh, you know it, it it just I don't know it it just appeals to every single aspect of what I love about movies um, the the visuals I, I mean sure it is a little long it feels a little long some of the stuff is familiar especially if you've read the book or seen the miniseries uh it feels like it's playing with the you know coming of age tropes and uh and i'm kind of tired of uh movies with monsters or aliens being forced to make a human character a human villain of some kind you know what let's just let's just have freddy we don't need the human villain do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i don't know uh but you know i'm not gonna go into spoilers or anything uh but yeah, I I really liked it. Uh, after getting out of the the movie, uh, I want to see part. I want to see chapter two. You know, I yeah, want to see for it, sure. It's like uh, it's so. I wish that something like this was made back to back. You know, so that we, I can know I could see that in a year. But likely, it's probably going to be two years, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me ask you this, Peter. Did what did you think about uh, Bill Skarsgård's performance as Pennywise the clown? You know, I, I wasn't creeped out by him. Uh, my girlfriend Kitra was, uh, my arm still hurts from, <laughs> from her grabbing it. Uh, she, she was freaked, freaked out more than I. Uh, I don't want to say I, I don't think I was scared by the movie in any way. I, I think if I was younger, I would, I, I would have been scared. I uh, definitely his voice, which I'm not, has the voice been in any of the trailers? A little bit, very briefly. Yeah, it's kind of like this low-pitched voice. I'm not sure if I like that choice for that character, but um, uh, the movie definitely does some stuff. As an R-rated movie with kids in danger, it does some gutsy stuff that I don't think I've seen on the big screen in many years. And uh, that, stu- that was kind of exciting for me because I'm excited to see a story with you know young children that is not 
you know, PG or PG-13. Yeah. And I, it's funny that you should mention that he didn't really scare you that much because that, that was one of my big feelings walking out of the movie. And it was I think for me, it was because I had just read the book for the first time. So I knew a lot of the moments, a lot of the big scares that were coming because it does a, a, such a good job adapting the book. But and like I liked the uh, sections of the movie that sort of um, added a different layer or a little extra step to it that I didn't see coming as a book reader. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that it didn't really scare you that much because I, was, I wasn't as scared as I wanted to be. I still love the movie. I wasn't quite as scared as I wanted it to be or as I wanted to be, but um, I was wondering if that was just because the story itself was so fresh in my mind. But it seems like – and you haven't read the book, right, or not No, recently. I haven't read the book. I've seen the miniseries years ago, and I remember being scared of that as a kid, but yeah. Sure so it's interesting. It yeah, it's uh, interesting that you sort of feel the same way um, without having just read the book. So. But I definitely connected with the coming of age story. I think the most. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm interested to see where this goes as them as adults in uh, chapter two. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is exciting for me. Uh, you've been gone in Boston. What, what have you been up to? Yeah, I visited Boston for the first time with my wife and my parents. Um, They're from Florida, and we're obviously in L.A., and we just uh, picked a spot, picked a big city that we had never really been to before, and um, yeah, did all the sort of touristy stuff. We were only there for a couple days, a few days, and... um, You did the duck tours? Yeah, did the duck tour. That was really (laughs) awesome. It's like a... uh, They put you in these these, um, vehicles that are... uh, on land and then they also they're like amphibious also they they just like it's a it's like a, an outfitted world war ii boat or something like that and you can drive around um with this you know throughout the city with the tour guide sort of pointing out spots to you along the way and then you actually ride down into the charles river and it turns into a boat basically like some sort of james bond thing and then you ride around on the river and get like a, a cool view of the city and stuff from the middle of the river so that was pretty awesome um and yeah like the freedom trail which was like a big Um, I think it's like a two mile long trail where it has all these historical um, monuments and stuff like uh, spots set up for like, oh, this was the church where Paul Revere did like the one if by land, two if by sea thing with the lanterns and stuff like that. Um, So like I love the clam chowder. No, I'm not not a big uh, clam chowder fan, but um, did you go to Faneuil Hall at least? Uh, we walked through there a little bit. Um, the, I think it's Quincy market, which is right next to that. They have yes. like, tons of food mm-hmm. and yeah, it's sort of like grand central market in downtown LA. Um, and yeah, we, we went there a couple times to eat and the food was always really good. Um, I was, yes, somebody who was never really super interested in American history just because it was so dry in, you know, when I was growing up in elementary school, when they would teach you about all this stuff, it was really cool. It sort of, um, opened my eyes to, the fact that these are like real people, these aren't just like names in a history book. I know that probably sounds stupid, but like standing on the spot of, you know, like the Boston Massacre, like all these places where um, the revolution began, it was it was um, a really cool experience to be there and, and sort of, um, you know, walk where these people walked. And it makes me want to go back and like dive into that period of history and like really learn about it in a way that uh, just a textbook couldn't teach me about. Yeah, I, I lived uh, in a town outside of Boston growing up. So as a kid, we would, you know, regularly take school trips to Boston and visit those kind of locations. I love the architecture. I love, uh, you know, the cobblestone streets and these small, yeah. like, historic buildings surrounded by skyscrapers. And uh, and I also... The alleys. Yeah. And I used to um, 
for a summer, I worked at uh, the New England Aquarium, which is short, shortly by where the area you're talking about. And every day mm-hmm. I'd run to uh, Quincy Market and grab something from one of the booths and, and, and eat nice. and then bring it back and watch the penguins and the penguins. But uh, yes, so uh, I love Boston. And you and I being in California, you're lucky to see, you know, an 80-year-old building. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, HD, what have you been up to? Uh, so I have been a bit fixated on the story surrounding My Immortal, which is an infamous Harry Potter fan fiction that was published in uh, 2006 and 2007. So the reason that it's uh, starting to come up again is that there's been a long and arduous search for who the mysterious author behind this fan fiction is. So the reason why this is a huge internet mystery is because this fan fiction is notoriously bad. Um, but it also spanned four, 44 chapters and almost 23,000 words. So it was a, a <laughs> wow. terrible fan fiction, but they kept at it. And that's what's so, the most remarkable. So there are lines like, um, oh, well, it's about this, uh, this character who is a new character named Ebony Raven Dementia Way. And she's in a relation, she's a vampire who's in a relationship with Draco Malfoy and, um, his, his ex-boyfriend is Harry, is Harry Potter, except he's he's named Vampire Potter. Um, so it's all kind of ridiculous. Um, My Immortal is the title of an Evanescence song, and they make lots of references to all those emo punk bands from the early 2000s, like My Chemical Romance. I think like Gerard Way is her idol or something. So it's it's just it's written so badly, but in a way that's like that's incredibly amusing and almost. Um, and by the way, Artistic. you say you say twenty three thousand words. That is words. that is exactly one third the size of the first Harry Potter book. Yes, That's it a is. Lot. It is a novel. It is a novel of badly written um, garbage, but it's a very amusing garbage. Here, I'll um, I'll read some uh, sentences. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, one of them is: I may be a Hogwarts student. Harigrid paused angrily, but I am also a Satanist. Um, <laughs> another one is Konnichiwa, everybody come in, said Professor Sinister in Japanese. Um, <laughs> another one is Hi, vampire, I said flirtily as I started to sob. So it's it's a just flirty like, sob. I love that a move. flirty sob because you know she's emo, so she has to you know <laughs> represent. It's just incredibly fascinating how bad it is so there are all these theories surrounding it whether it was a troll fanfic whether someone just wrote this you know 44 chapter novel in complete um like satire essentially but it feels like it's from the musings of some you know very uh from a very imaginative teenage girl recently it resurfaced again because um, the fanfiction.net uh, account on which it was originally published uh, was updated, the biography, and it basically came to say, uh, hi, I am not Lanny Sarem, who is the author of the this YA book called uh, Handbook for Mortals, which recently uh, stirred up some controversy in the YA um, novel it, Twitter circles because it was allegedly buying um, New York Times bestsellers, uh, buying the spot on the New York Times bestseller list by... Uh, uh, by um, The publisher um, buying a lot of books. Yeah, by buying a lot of books in 
the bookstores that would report to the bestsellers list. So that was discovered and a lot of people were making parallels to My Immortal because the language was very similar and very bad. Um, So the author apparently went back on fanfiction.com to state that she was not Lanny Sarem because that was such a gross accusation. But after that, a, um, a publisher said that this is not the author, but uh, someone else who is writing a memoir about her writing My Immortal. So it got this woman who was writing the um, memoir got tracked down to her Tumblr to a novelist named Rose Christo, who came out on her Tumblr saying that, yes, she wrote My Immortal. And she didn't answer whether it was a troll fic or not, but uh, she's currently writing um, Under the Same Stars, which is a memoir about her, allegedly. And um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I'm not sure if this is the same person. It might just be uh, one of the many people who came out to uh, claim that they were responsible for the amazing work of art that is my immortal. <laughs> but um, it seems genuine, apparently. What a so. labyrinth. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's like it's one of those early internets conspiracies slash mysteries that just like is very fascinating for people who grew up in this sort of like digital time and who grew up reading fan fiction a lot of bad and good fan fiction so it's weird that it's finally coming out now who she is after all these years um we'll have the link to my immortal in the show notes um yes please do (laughs) but we're almost 20 minutes into the show so let's get right into the news guys uh live action aladdin movie has cast it's token white guy. HT, you wrote this up for the site. I feel I, I feel like almost every other day on the site and on the podcast, we're talking about some kind of problematic casting in Hollywood. Um, well, tell us about this one. Yeah, it's almost like it's a systemic problem. Um, so uh, the Hollywood Reporter broke the news that Billy Magnuson, who is known for uh, recently appearing in Ingrid Goes West and also appearing in Into the Woods as the other prince, uh, has been cast in Aladdin as a Prince, prince Anders from Scanland, which is a uh, municipality in Norway. So it is a real country, or real municipality at least. Um, so he is an original character who was not um, in the original uh, animated movie from 1992. Uh, He's been created entirely for this new film uh, directed by Guy Ritchie. Uh, So he will reportedly be one of the suitors for Princess Jasmine, who she rejects uh, constantly as a sort of uh, refusal to abide by her father, the Sultan's um, orders, and because, you know, she's a rebel. Uh, So there's not much more information about what role he will play and how big of a role it will be. But it is a little bit um, concerning because he will be the first white actor who has been cast in this movie. So far, we've had only people of color be cast. Um, We've had the lead actors cast as Egyptian-Canadian actor Mina Masood, um, half Indian, half British actress Naomi Scott. Um, Will Smith was cast as the CGI genie. Um, And then actress Nassim Padrad, who is from Saturday Night Live, is playing um, a handmaid. Numana Carr is henchman, and Mar- Marwan Kanzari is Jafar. Oh, oh, okay, so, H.E., let, let me play the idiot uh, devil's advocate here. You have this entire diverse cast. Why can't there be one white guy in this in this adaptation? 
because there's no need for it. Um, there's just no no storyline or narrative that in- calls for a white guy to be in Aladdin, which is set firmly in the Middle East, um, strictly the Arabian Peninsula. It is of the utmost importance to people who are fans of the film and fans of the story that it have a diverse cast because uh, like we were talking about yesterday, it's about representation. It's about seeing yourself on screen. And because there are so few roles and prominent roles for people of color and people specifically of Middle Eastern and a South Asian descent who aren't, you know, terrorists or um, something of the sort, then it feels like it's diluting how powerful a movie this could be. And it also goes into the whole um, shoehorning a white actor in in order to sell a movie in Hollywood. Uh, what which also is seems weird is this guy's not even a big star, so it's not like you're shoehorning Matt Damon or shoehorning Tom Cruise into the movie to sell tickets. You're exactly. shoehorning a white actor into the movie just to have a white face. Yeah. So. So yeah, that's why it just seems completely needless. I don't really understand this thinking, other than just to like, I don't know, have white representation in it which doesn't it which isn't a very strong argument um so i have not been very happy with this news uh, well, well you, you you have a whole article on slash film that is a feature on the site so i would, I would yeah. recommend everybody go to that and read that uh let's move on in the news uh an authorized dracula prequel is coming that bit of news does not excite me but it's coming from the director of it that does excite me ben you're at the article for the site what do we know yeah, so uh, Paramount has acquired the screen rights to a project called Dracul, which is a, a prequel novel that's co-written by uh, Bram Stoker's great-grandnephew uh, and a horror author named J.D. Barker. The story is set in 1868, where a 21-year-old Bram Stoker meets up with an ungodly evil that he traps in an ancient tower, all the while scribbling the events that led him there. So... Uh, This is a book that Paramount is turning into a movie. It's unclear who is going to be writing that movie. uh, But Andy Muschietti, who's directing the new It movie, is attached to direct the project. We know he's also attached to direct a live action adaptation of Robotech. So it's probably going to be a little while before this one hits theaters. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, we saw the origin of Dracula in 2014's Dracula Untold. That didn't exactly pan out very well. We know that uh, Universal has their whole dark universe, uh, uh, cinematic universe thing that they've got set up. And I don't think they've officially uh, cast a new Dracula yet, but that character features prominently in the company's uh, announcement video that they released when they said, hey, we're we're going by the name Dark Universe now. They showed a bunch of clips from the old horror movies like The Wolfman, Invisible Man, all that stuff. And Dracula was was featured pretty heavily in there. Um, years ago, they were talking about, oh, yeah, Dracula Untold is actually the first movie in this whole thing. But that seems like the sort of redheaded stepchild of the Dark Universe so far, where they, they could very easily, if they wanted to, just forget that that whole thing ever happened. So it's unclear whether they're going to cast Luke Evans, again, you know, bring him back to play Dracula. He seems like kind of a a smaller actor, you know, going up against yeah. people like uh, Tom Cruise and, you know, um, Russell Crowe, you know, like big heavy hitter A-list guys. So I'm not quite sure if Luke Evans can sort of hang in that company. But 
Um, but yeah, this is supposed to be a separate project, and Paramount definitely needs a hit, so I don't know if this is going to be a new franchise for them or what. And, and you said the author plays a role in the story. So this is kind of like um, Shakespeare in Love or... Uh... I mean, this past week we had a trailer for a movie I didn't even know existed called The Man Who Invented Christmas, which is the story of <laughs> Charles Dickens writing A Christmas Carol. I'm not sure if we need... I, I, I guess Hollywood really has run out of ideas because now they're tackling not remakes of these classic stories, but the origin stories of these classic stories. And Yeah, uh, and this one, you know, it sounds like it has like a little bit of a spin to it where like the story of Dracula was inspired by these quote unquote real supernatural events that this version of Bram Stoker experiences in this movie. So it's like a little bit different than just like a purely sort of uncinematic telling of just a guy writing a book. But um but still, yeah, I'm I'm sort of with you, Peter. I feel like this I don't need to see this story, but I am a little bit intrigued that Andy Muschietti is involved. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, moving on, Justice League is apparently still undergoing reshoots, and they're doubling down on Wonder Woman. Uh, we previously told you that they uh, had added a dream sequence with, uh, I mean, a flashback sequence with um, Robin Wright's character from Wonder Woman. HT, you wrote the story for the site. What do we know? So they're going under record crunch time for Justice League, uh, which comes out in theaters in two months. So we have a new new news of reshoots coming from uh, Swedish kickboxer slash MMA fighter Madeline Val Boehner. So she, uh, she played one of the Amazons in Wonder Woman. Um, and um, she posted on her Instagram that she will be reuniting with her fellow Amazon warriors to film a new scene in Italy, which is where they shot um, the scenes for Themyscira in Wonder Woman. And she is going in less than three weeks um, with, and she tagged, she also tagged uh, Antiope, which is Robin Wright's character. So through process of elimination, it can only be Justice League that she is going back to shoot because Wonder Woman is now on Blu-ray and DVD and Wonder Woman 2 is not yet in production uh, after the long negotiations that Patty Jenkins went through for her pay. So less than three weeks uh, is narrowing down on about a month to go before uh, Justice League comes out by the time they finish shooting these hopefully last uh, shots for the reshoots. Um, So it's, it's, going to yeah. be going down to crunch time this sounds like it might be the scene that i was speaking about uh in a in an earlier podcast where mm-hmm. robin wright's character basically it's used to explain who steppenwolf is and she basically explains it in a flashback to diana i think right um, yeah so i think so they're that... like yeah so they're going to be introducing steppenwolf through the flashback because his boom tube will reportedly take him to Themyscira and results, I think, in some big battle scene led by Antiope and the Amazons against Steppenwolf. Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, okay, the most um, surprising bit in today's news are that there are new bidders for the James Bond film rights. We just assumed it was going to be Sony, but joining the mix are Amazon and Apple? Ben, you wrote it for the site. What, what do we know here? Yeah, so um, MGM and Eon Productions control the rights to the James Bond franchise, but they don't actually distribute the movies. Uh, previously, for the past like 10 plus years, Sony has been the distributor, but recently their um, 
contract ran out. So Sony and Warner Brothers and um, Universal and Fox and Annapurna Films, Annapurna Pictures of all places, uh, have been sort of vying for the rights to distribute the new Bond movies. And now Apple and Amazon are getting into the mix. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter says that uh, Warner Brothers is currently the front runner to potentially land the rights to distribute the films, but Apple and Amazon are both willing to spend in the same ballpark as Warner Brothers, if not much more. Um, that theoretically could be a pretty big deal if it happens, because there is the potential, uh, considering these companies are both sort of primarily digital um, the there's the thought that maybe they could be looking to purchase the entire rights to the James Bond property outright instead of just the right to distribute. And if that is the case, then maybe they could, you know, expand the character out into a James Bond TV show, for example, or, um, you know, any sort of any number of uh, ways to sort of franchise out this already existing uh, film franchise. So, uh, yeah, that would definitely throw a huge wrench into the way that you know blockbuster filmmaking works in Hollywood right now. Um, apparently, Warner Brothers considers Apple a legitimate threat because the Hollywood Reporter says that uh, Warner Brothers is now pushing MGM hard to close a deal quickly presumably before Apple can sort of get in there and, and gain enough leverage to negotiate the deal away from Warner Brothers. So, uh, yeah, this is just sort of a, an out-of-nowhere um, announcement, and it has some interesting implications for the future of uh, the landscape as we know it. This seems so weird because, I mean, Amazon makes sense, but Apple does not. I know they're doing some original shows for Apple Music. They're doing that carpool karaoke and that app show. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget what it's called, something of the app. Um, and uh, I don't know. It, I just don't see Apple building their own Netflix. Amazon's obviously trying to compete in that area. I feel like if Apple wants to do anything, they should just buy Netflix or buy Disney. And I think I, I, and I was saying this earlier in the Slash Film, or Slash Film staff private chat, but uh, Apple is almost worth $1 trillion. So they have in cash... Two hundred and forty-six billion dollars. That's insane. Disney's only worth one hundred seventy-five. Netflix is supposedly only worth like seventy. They could buy. They could buy Netflix and Disney, and not be in debt. I mean, that <laughs> that's probably, amazing. Yeah, but like, why? why I, it just seems so ridiculous for for uh, Apple to buy a film property or franchise. It seems like they should be going bigger. I don't know. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I, I wonder if, um, you know, the, the thing that I don't want to happen is for a deal like that to go through. And then we get a James Bond TV show, for example, but you can only watch it, you know, on an Apple, subs you know, an Apple exclusive thing like Apple Music or something like that, where you have to like pay another subscription fee to watch it. I, I, fe I fear that that's the way that things are going. Um, and I would just I would be so upset if that happened. Peter, are you advocating for Apple to try to to accomplish world domination? <laughs> I love Apple. Um, I, I am an Apple oh, yeah. I, I am an Apple uh, stockholder. Uh, and, oh, that's why. Okay. And, you know what? Part of the Disney board and part of the Apple board has some some uh, crossover with Disney. So, so I don't know. I, I just see that as the perfect marriage. I feel like th that's going to happen one day. It seems like Apple, you know, Apple always uses Disney products 
in their like demos and you know they'll use Pixar on like their iPad commercial or whatnot. It it just seems like the perfect marriage. And if they want to get into Apple, definitely wants to get into the the space that Amazon and Netflix are going into of having you know a streaming service and owning content. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the best way to do that is to buy the content. And Disney is the content. You know, Disney has said that they're going to start a streaming service. I mean, it seems seems like a no brainer to me, but. What do I know? Yeah. Um, let's. Go, it, 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 we are 34 minutes into the show, so we should get into the mailbag, guys. Jake from Massachusetts asks, is Kathleen Kennedy to blame for all the Star Wars problems? Um, I'll start this out. Uh, I think that's an unfair question. Kathleen Kennedy has, um, I, we've said this before in the podcast, it has a long track record of producing amazing films with amazing directors and i think she's used to working with these top level talent that doesn't need the hand holding that some of these newcomers do um and i think uh the plan to hire these hot upcoming directors for star wars was uh maybe misguided um but i think i think there's some lessons to be learned here especially with the lord and miller han solo thing and that is uh you know if you fix the problems before you start shooting you save yourself hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> so uh i think her you know switching gears before we sh- start shooting episode nine i think that's a smart move by her um i don't know if kathleen kennedy is the person to run a lucasfilm in the in, in the long run uh i have faith in her I, I, you know, she's made so many good decisions and even with the people that she's hired, even though maybe it hasn't worked out in the end, it seemed like good decisions on paper. Um, if she were ever to leave Lucasfilm, I would love to see Kevin Feige, the head of Marvel who loves Star Wars and has, you know, he developed the model of cinematic universes and, you know, hiring these hot young directors to work in a collaborative corporate entity. I, I, I think Kevin Feige, uh, and, and I, I bet you if, if you ask Kevin Feige, I mean, he's been doing the Marvel thing for so long <laughs> since, you know, X-Men came out. I, I would bet he's looking for, you know, an exciting change in in, in, in his career. I, I would love to see Kevin Feige uh, run uh Lucasfilm and Marvel, but I mean Lucasfilm and, and, and Star Wars, uh, but I, I don't think Kathleen Kennedy is to blame. I think uh, this could have happened to anybody of her stature. What, what, what do you think, HD? I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second and say that as soon as we have a woman like Kathleen Kennedy in power um, <laughs> behind the scenes, people start singling her out as the cause for all the mess that's going on at Lucasfilm and at Disney. And I don't think that is the single cause. Yeah. I think, you know, and I, and I also I realize that's problematic replacing her with Kevin, uh, a, a white male. But, no, I so, wasn't talking about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do think, like you said, Kathleen Kennedy is part of the old guard of Hollywood. And that's the way that she works and that she knows how to work. And um, Lucasfilm and Disney were trying out the, the sort of the Marvel strategy of plucking these indie directors out of obscurity after they had one successful hit or one or two successful hits and putting them at the helm of um, 
really big blockbusters that they haven't had experience making before. And sometimes it turns out well, and sometimes it doesn't turn out well. Uh, you have, uh, for example, um, Fantastic Four by uh, Josh Trank, which tanked. Josh tranked. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, but you have success stories like um, Trevor with Jurassic World, um, even though I have my personal thoughts about that. But, you know, it's a, it's a hit or miss strategy. And I think that Kathleen Kennedy is so uh, set in her ways of working that she's not willing to take as many chances because Star Wars is a really influential and big property and they can't really afford to have uh, so many um, misses as before. And I do think that she also feels pressure as a woman to not have as, as many um, failures at the box office or critically. For sure. And uh, it should be mentioned that Marvel wasn't without their failures early on. You know, they had a lot of uh, of rough going in those early Mar- Marvel Cinematic Universe films. Um, so, I mean, it, it takes some getting going to, to get there. Uh, ben, what, what are your thoughts? So the question is, is Kathleen Kennedy to blame for all the Star Wars problems? I think the answer is yes, but what everyone sees as problems um, – is just being viewed from the viewpoint of a director. And and I think that she's definitely responsible, but she's, she is responsible for shaping the company and this, yes, highly influential, incredibly expensive, uh, potentially lucrative brand that, um, you know, very few people have the amount of pressure on them on their shoulders that Kathleen Kennedy does. I think uh, you're right, Peter and, and HC. I think she has the uh, the years and the experience to do it. I would like to see her do it for years and years and years to come. I think Kevin Feige is doing his thing, and and you know I think he'll be fine. I'm not really worried about the future of Kevin Feige. Um, <laughs> I would I would love to see Kennedy sort of uh, settle into a groove where it, because I feel like this is just like you're saying, Peter, the same thing with early MCU. This is just sort of a chaotic period for Lucasfilm right now. Um, I'm, it's clear that they were sort of going after the sexier choices for directors and that hasn't really worked out very well. I would like to think that they're going to, you know, and right now all of us are like, oh, well, they picked Ron Howard to direct Han Solo. So this basically means that they're going with nothing but safe choices from here on out. Um, I would like to think that they're going to be able to sort of strike a balance and, um, you know, go with more people like uh, in the realm of Ryan Johnson and and maybe like an Ava DuVernay, you know, people who have proven um, uh, track records on their own, but who are able to work with big corporations and actually thrive in a producer driven environment. So it's just, it's a super challenging um, thing to, you know, we, we uh, as a film blogging community tend to fetishize directors and creatives. um, And a lot of times we don't give people like Kennedy the credit that I think she deserves for being able to, you know, wrangle all of this stuff. So, um, so yeah, it's easy on the outside to say like, oh, it's you know Kennedy's at the top, so all of this is is her fault, quote unquote. But I th- I think there's I think she has a tremendous responsibility to the Disney shareholders, you know, all of this kind of stuff, um, and and she wants to make good movies, and I think The Force Awakens is a great movie, so I I, I yeah. think that it can be done. I agree. Um, so I'm just hoping that uh, that you know nobody 
that Bob Iger doesn't fire her because of all this kind of stuff. I, I would love to see her sort of shake this off and move on and continue to triumph moving yeah. forward. Yeah, I definitely don't think she's going to get fired. I think if anything, she would step down. But uh, I don't see that happening either. And I, I just want to say that even though we're saying Star Wars problems, you know, The Force Awakens was one of the top films of all times at the, at the box office. And the merchandising sales is, you know, a juggernaut. Uh, Rogue One uh, was widely reviewed as a success. The box office, amazing. Uh, so, so far, the first two releases from the system, even though there have been some, uh, you know, reshoot, costly reshoots and whatnot that, you know, probably hurt the bottom line, uh, have not been failures in any sense of the word. Uh, and when you compare that to Marvel, there were some failures early on. You know, look at Iron Man 2. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I, you know, I, I I think she has some time left to, to prove herself, and I think she is going to prove herself. But, um, yeah. Uh, I agree. I think we tend to prejudge these things as we report constantly on these corporate goings-on, um, and we don't really – uh, we kind of lose track of, you know, the final product, which are the movies that come out. And, you know, it will be a couple of years before we see any of these movies except for The Last Jedi. Um, and I think that I agree completely with Ben about the um, creatives versus the corporates sort of debate that we go that goes on. I think like, you know, the corporates do their job well and um, they have had their success for a reason. You know, they they um, count their losses and they play things close to the chest uh, for good reasons because they have a respect for these stories. For sure. Okay. Anyways, if you want to submit your question to the mailbag, send them to peter at slash film.com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention the question on the air like we did with Jake from Massachusetts. Again, that's peter at slash film.com. Uh, you can find more of my work at slash home on Twitter you can find Ben at Ben Pears on Twitter. You can find HT at HTran Bowie on Twitter and the Millennial Falcon podcast and iTunes. Uh, you can find more on all these stories on SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to SlashFilm Daily, which is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Just search SlashFilm Daily. Uh, and uh, if you are enjoying this, please head over to iTunes or Google Play Store, leave us a review, rate us. Uh, that helps us out quite a bit. It gives us a boost up in the rankings, and it helps more people find this. Tweet, Facebook, share the word, and we will see you tomorrow.